Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 128 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're so happy to be together today, still at a distance, but together. Yes, together and together in a lot of ways. Yes. These days. That's right. There's been a big change that we've kind of kept under wraps until today. I recently moved. As listeners know, or some know, I have been commuting lately. I moved in with the gentleman caller up to West Hartford, the place I was living in in Guilford sold. And lo and behold, although it's incredibly hard to find a place these days, I got really lucky because my friend Chris lives next door to a house that came up for rent. So now the book cougars are together on air and neighbors in real life. It's unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) It's really been an amazing turn of events. It's just lovely to be back in Guilford and um, nothing's gone awry with the gentleman caller. We're still with each other and visiting back and forth at each other's houses, but it is lovely to be back near the shoreline, which is uh, what is near and dear to my heart. So thank you, Chris for helping to make this happen. My pleasure. It's so great to have you back down here. And bonus for me, I got to see the gentleman caller a little bit more often. (laughs) That's right. And you know, hope we're hoping soon, I'm going to be vaccinated fully soon that we might be able to start recording in person again, more to come on that in the future. Yeah, yeah, really looking forward to that. Yeah. So a lot of excitement in uh, our lives is in, in our personal lives, which has been really fun to be near to each other now. We also have a big thank you to Ryan, one of our listeners and friends who's become a Patreon sponsor. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's really wonderful of you to support us this way. We so appreciate it. Yeah, Ryan has also been a supporter um, with some software type questions that I have. He's been a real help uh, to the Book Cougars in many ways. We appreciate you, Ryan. Thank you. Absolutely. And if you're not already following Ryan on Instagram, we totally recommend that you do because he posts some really great book reviews. Indeed. And he takes amazing pictures. And his, um, what do you call it? His handle. Handle, thank you, is Read by Ryan. And Ryan and Russell, who has been a guest on the podcast, remember most recently he uh, was on with our top favorites of 2020. They have started a book club and they meet via Zoom. So if you also reach out to Read by Ryan and want to join that book club, they read incredible books. Their, Their next up is a book by Amy Tan. So highly recommend. Yeah. Thanks again, Ryan. All right. So Emily, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading The Age of Light by Whitney Scherer. This is historical fiction. It's based on the life of Lee Miller, who was a Vogue model back in the 20s, moved to Paris and uh, became friends with a professional photographer and convinced him that she wanted to become his apprentice and turns and is on the other side of the camera. And I'm about five chapters in, and it's really beautifully written and um, takes place, this part anyway, takes place in Paris. And I know a lot more is going to happen because she ends up being a war correspondent or is that, do you call it a war correspondent if they're the photographer? I don't know. Um, if she a photojournalist. Photojournalist. Thank you. Yeah. For in, during World War II and uh, for Vogue and does a lot of other things. So I'm just at the beginning of the book. 
As I said, I love the writing and it's fun right now since we're not doing much traveling at all to be in Paris at night when I sit down to read. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And again, that's called The Age of Light by Whitney Scherer. And Whitney's going to be a guest in May. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to reading her book because I do have a copy and also talking with her. I, too, am reading a historical fiction. This one's going a little bit further back in time to the mid 19th century, 1850s, 60s is where we are right now. It's Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine A. Shearbrook. And this is a fictionalized account of Lucy Stone's life. And Lucy Stone was one of the instrumental suffragettes and also an abolitionist who was known for not wanting to ever marry because when a woman married back then, she lost all rights to her property to her children, everything became her husband's. And she had a harsh example of that with one of her friends who was a little bit older when this friend married. And she vowed then never to be married until the laws changed. Well, you know how it is when you vow never to do something when you're younger. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so the novel, there's actual representation of what it was like to be a speaker, a woman speaker at this time when women were not allowed to speak in public by their husbands, by their churches, their voices were squelched. Lucy was kicked out of her church for speaking openly, for speaking in public. So this is a time when so much was changing for women and more women were starting to speak even though it was still very dicey and physically dangerous to do these things. Lucy was one of the first out there. I'm really loving the novel. I I didn't do much reading since the last time we recorded because I had two really big school projects due, which thankfully the second one got turned in yesterday. So what was I doing yesterday night? Getting back into this novel. And I just have a teeny tiny bit left to go. So I'm looking forward to finishing this tonight. And Um, The thing with Lucy Stone, too, was she, this is a spoiler alert, but she does marry. She resists and resists falling in love with this man. And she was also feeling like, damn, you know, here I am telling everybody I'm never going to marry. And this is kind of like what she's known for. And then now here she is getting married. But they had a very different marriage and they kept everything separate. He was very much for this, for women keeping their own property and not becoming the property of their husbands. So when they did marry and there was all this conversation, brouhaha about Lucy Stone getting married to begin with, but then her husband, who was also a speaker, people were questioning his masculinity for allowing his wife to A, not take his name, and then B, have her own property and finances and things like that. Um, But as he said, you know, she's her own person. She's always been her own person. Why does she have to come under my name? So lots of good stuff. Susan B. Anthony is a character in here. So is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. If you're into women's suffragettes or that time period, I do recommend it. I am looking forward to diving back in again. And again, that's Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine A. Sherbrooke. It's available, I think, May 1st this comes out comes out in May. So pretty soon after this episode airs. Yep. It reminds me of when Gloria Steinem got married and everybody was all in a kerfuffle over it. You know, she too had vowed never to get married, but you just have to find the right partner. Well, I mean, and if you decide never to get married and it never works for you, 
that's fine too. I, I you know, oh, I mean, right. that's I didn't, I didn't I, mean to imply that. I just meant like, you know, you would think people who have, you know, those very strong opinions and the, and the reasons that they're reticent to get married, that if they decide to get married, it's going to be because they found a partner that understands that aspect of their wants and desires. Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody who contributes to your life. Right. Exactly. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That makes enriches your life. Yeah. I just I know that you weren't implying that I just meant to say like totally fine if people choose Absolutely. not to yeah. or I know a lot of people who you know thought they wanted kids at one point and then they didn't and marriage is the same thing and I'm going to just stop talking now and I'm not married so you know there you have it it's all good <laughs> <laughs> I'm also reading The Address Book by Deirdre Mask. I'm going to be hosting Deirdre in a conversation at the Newburyport Festival this Saturday, which will be over by the time this podcast airs. But Deirdre wrote this book about where people live and the impact of addresses, street names. But it's broader than that. It's, a, it's a narrative nonfiction, and she tells a lot of stories and it's amazing. She goes to Haiti and she talks about the importance of knowing where people live to track cholera outbreaks and things like that. Mm. That, you know, I just, of course, it makes sense, but I'd never really thought about it in the context in which she's writing. She talks about street names in Germany and how they've changed over time. She goes to Florida and talks about the KKK and the impact that the KKK has had down in Florida historically on how name, street names are put into place with, you know, things like Robert E. Lee Lane, you know. So she's really taking you through not only history, but also around the globe and talking about people who have addresses, people who don't neighborhoods and how they've been impacted over the years. I'm really enjoying it. I cannot wait to talk to her about this book. I, I can't wait to talk to her about why she wrote it because she didn't intend to write it. So that's probably going to be my first question. Yeah. <laughs> so can you, what's her background that she did write this then? That, well, like what got her interested in? She's a journalist by trade. So she, you know, is a writer by trade, obviously. And she was mailing a letter to her father and got really interested in how I, she was in another country and she mailed this and it was like 52 cents and it arrived in the United States three days later. And she just wanted to understand the history of the Postal Service and how it came to be and how miraculous this is really that it was 50 cents. <laughs> this piece of mail got to her dad, you know, across the, the pond. And it turned into this book, you know, as she started to research it and learn more about that. But, you know, she really, after she had that thought, she realized she had to understand what it means to not have an address. And so I'm one of the questions I'm going to ask her is, was it a linear process in her mind? Or was it, you know, as she investigated addresses, she realized like, oh, there's a whole part of people all over the world who don't have addresses and either live in slums or in rural places. And what does that mean for them? And what does it mean for the people who are trying to bring those people into the world of addresses? And then what happens to people who don't have identification? How can they get a street address? 
you know. Right. Yeah. It's it's a complicated issue, and it's as someone who uses mail a lot. I mean, I really appreciate the mail, and I, it it really has been problematic over this last year with the pandemic. I've I've just am finding it really interesting to understand more about all of it, and just to question the names of streets. Which mm-hmm. I grew up in a really small town where you didn't use street names. You said, "Oh, turn over where Sarah lives, take a right." And then go down over by the grocery store and you'll see this. You know? Right. Yeah. And when I moved back to that town that I grew up in as an adult with someone who didn't live there growing up and I tried to tell him where to go, it became this incredibly frustrating process for him. Like, I don't know where Sarah lives. Like, could I have a street name? You know? <laughs> so I had to learn the street names of this small town I had grown up in. It was really funny. And yeah. So it's really made me just think more about names and places. and um, But it is, I want just people to understand it's more complex than that. And it's, she really uses stories to get her point across, which I appreciate as well. That's great. Well, it's interesting because even the, the book I'm reading, this Leaving Coy's Hill, the only mode of communication really back then was mail, letter writing. And there's this one scene where, you know, Lucy Stone is going to speak at a place, I think it's in Philadelphia, and she gets to the hall ahead of time, like she usually does, because she likes to be in the building before the crowd comes in and kind of see them coming in and kind of checking their tone. And and she notices a sign saying no black people allowed. She had no idea that there was segregation in Philadelphia. And, and this is still, you know, pre-Civil War. And she doesn't know what to do because it's a huge crowd that, that sold out this big amphitheater that sold out to hear her speak. And she talks to the guy who's there, who's caretaking the place. And he's like, lady, you know, I don't make the rules, but if you cancel, you owe half of the ticket amount. And that's a you know ton of money. She doesn't have that kind of money. So she doesn't know what to do. And so I won't say what she ends up doing, but the point is really what I took from that was she couldn't reach out to anybody to talk it over. Like she couldn't just pick up the phone and Mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, she couldn't just send an email or a text. She didn't know anybody in town. So she made her best decision that she could make and tried to make the best out of the situation. But again, it, it became one of those situations where you couldn't make anyone happy. So she was pretty much stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Yeah. But anyway, just that issue of mail and how important it is and what a lifeline of communication it was back then. Yeah. But it took a while. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't, there was no instant gratification back yeah, then. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I still love getting mail now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's really lovely to get mail. But you're right. We, you know, we don't do it as much because we can text and email mm-hmm. and all of that. But yeah. yeah. Well, the book is called The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power by Deirdre Mask. Moving on to Just Red. Now, I didn't finish anything since the last time we talked, but I know you did, so do tell. Yeah, I read a book called Brood by Jackie Polzin. This book isn't going to be for everyone. It's not plot-driven at all. It's very contemplative. It's about a young woman who you don't ever learn her name. She's an unnamed narrator, 
And it's a little bit into the story that you learn that she has lost a child and she's raising a brood of chickens. And the story's really about her raising these chickens. And it really is contemplative on the term brood itself because she's brooding over this loss and her grief, you know, which means to think about something, right? She has this brood of chickens and... You know, brood also means to sit or on something or hatch something, which is obviously what the chickens are doing because there's a lot of chat about the chickens and their eggs. But she's also thinking about this loss of her own egg, essentially. So it's sad, but it's also a really interesting book. I mean, I was kind of mesmerized by it, but I think for some people, they would just find it completely boring. I didn't. I thought it was interesting. She talks about her neighbors and the children in her neighborhood and they come to look at the chickens and there's a lot of drama around raising chickens. I have friends who raise chickens and things happen to them. I mean, I was in the yard with one of my friends one time and a hawk just swooped down and picked up one of her chickens and flew away. Poor chicken. I know. And we were like, what the what? (laughs) Like right in front of us. So there's some drama with her chickens. So there is that, but there's no plot. And like I said, it's very contemplative, but the writing is beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I also wanted to just show you the cover, Chris. It's really pretty. It's like all these little oh yeah, beautiful, beautiful. chicken feathers Pink flying. Feathers, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I, I should that. thank Doubleday for sending me this copy that I requested from them. Um, again, it's called Brood by Jackie Polzin. And then I also read a book called Finding Freedom, A Cook's Story, Remaking a Life from Scratch by Aaron French. Um, I got a copy of this book from Celadon. It has a beautiful cover. It's a picture of Aaron behind like a big bouquet of flowers. It's a memoir about her life and time running the restaurant that's called The Lost Kitchen. Have you ever heard of that, Chris? I have not. It's up in Freedom, Maine. And this is a restaurant that's beloved and impossible to get into. She makes purely farm-to-table food, so from the food around her restaurant in Maine. And the restaurant is in a converted mill in Freedom, Maine. She does more like European-style seating where you sit at a table with people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And it became such a popular restaurant that they would... They started a reservation system where they would open reservations on one day of the year and you had to call in and make your reservation and it sold out the same day. Wow. And it was so stressful to them and to the people trying to make the reservations that they stopped that system. And now talking about mail, it's a postcard system and you have to send a postcard. They open it up on a certain day of a year and it's just a lottery So they get all these postcards and they literally pick the postcards. And she tells the story in the memoir about the first year they switched to this and how she went to her local post office, which is there's like one man that works there. I think he works a half a day. (laughs) The first time this happened and she went to pick it up, he was like, I hope you brought your car. And they got like more mail than they've ever gotten, you know, in this day. And um, so she tells the story of that. It's very sweet. But it's also 
the story goes back to her childhood. Her father owned a diner and that's where she learned to cook. And he was not a very pleasant man and he drank too much. But she really got her cooking chops from there and also just learned the woods around where she grew up and harvesting food and things like that. She finally leaves, goes to college, gets pregnant, comes home pregnant, works back at the diner, starts to make a life for herself and her son and ends up eventually remarrying or marrying, I should say. She hadn't been married yet. And then she converted a building and lived in an apartment upstairs and started a restaurant called The Lost Kitchen, very similar. But she became addicted to pills, ended up in rehab. And her husband, she had a very bad relationship with this husband. He ended up, it turns out her name was not on the deed of this building. Mistake and kind of what you were just talking about with Mm -hmm. your book, right? Yeah. And why women sometimes don't want to marry. And he closes down her restaurant, takes everything, including her son, because she's gone into rehab and he had adopted him. He convinces the courts that she's not a fit mother. So the story is about that and her going through rehab and refinding herself. And um, then she ended up moving back home, which she never thought she would, to Freedom, Maine, into like a cabin on her parents' property. And she gets an old airstream and renovates it and starts doing dinners out of her airstream i mean she has some (laughs) cooking chops and some wherewithal and she knows how to pull up her big girl panties and get to work (laughs) and then eventually this mill is renovated in town and the owners she speaks with the owners and they work together and she opens up a restaurant that's turned into this amazing success story She's remarried, and now they're building cabins on this property so that people, because they've been closed for the pandemic, but so that people can start coming back to the restaurant and maybe have, you know, dinners in these little individual places. And then eventually, maybe they'll be used for special dinners or something like that. That's so cool. What a neat concept. Yeah, it's a great book. She's a good writer. She also has a cookbook, which I've never looked at, but I plan to get now. The other thing I want to tell listeners is, you know, restaurants are struggling right now. I don't need to tell people that people know. But her restaurants completely shuttered. I mean, they can't do anything because it's a real dine-in type of establishment. But what she has done is started an online shop where she's featuring artists and craftspeople from Maine and selling their wares on the shop. And it's, yeah, it's really cool. She picks beautiful things and everything is selling out. Right now the shop is closed because they've sold everything, but check back and they'll be reopening it with more products. It was a really good book. Again, it's called Finding Freedom, A Cook's Story, Remaking a Life from Scratch by Erin French. And I should say she does get her son back. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's great. I mean, what yeah. a great title. i got to say that. Yeah. Really cool title. Really happy to hear she got her son back. And, you know, that's one of the problems with our current, you know, the legal system that when somebody's getting help, they're in rehab for her to just lose her son like that and not have any type of arrangement that's just so harmful and that make that's what makes some people not want to reach out and get help Mm -hmm. because they know that they could lose their job they could lose their children yeah the consequences it's and there isn't always situational ethics and you know the problem in this situation although of course you know caveat i'm reading her side of the story of course 
But, you know, he, her husband just seemed bitter because she also had these parents that had a great relationship with her son and he wouldn't let him see them. You know, I mean, like, that's just not thinking about the child. That's being bitter and angry. But, you know, she really um, worked through it in this book and I really enjoyed reading it. And it makes me really want to send in my postcard and try to get to that restaurant. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Well, may the force be with you and your postcard. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Did you have any Biblio adventures? You know, I did. I had two since we last recorded. One was an Emily Dickinson adventure. This is really cool. So this was a joint event between the Emily Dickinson House and Museum up in Amherst and Harvard's Houghton Library. They have the largest Emily Dickinson archival collection in the world there. So they did a behind the scenes tour of the archives. Obviously this is a Zoom event. So it was really neat to get uh, behind the, the door peek into some of the holdings that they have, some of the material items. The curator from the Houghton Library, Leslie Morris, was the one who was doing the presentation. And they have just finished a year-long renovation there. So I'd look forward for us to do a joint jaunt up there. They do a tour every Friday at 2 p.m. of the Dickinson Archives. So that would be really cool. They have her desk and her chair, among other things. That would be really fun to see. I was just going to ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was going to ask you if it's just paper or if it's items. So that's cool. It's actually physical items as well. Yes, it's physical items. They also have the very famous portrait of the three Dickinson children. And the chest of drawers that was in Emily Dickinson's bedroom where her sister Lavinia found a lot of uh, all of her poems after Emily Dickinson died. She found that treasure trove of poems. You know, the family knew she wrote, but they had no idea the extent of her writing. They also have the Dickinson family library, the books. And it's interesting because somebody asked about, you know, can you tell which books Emily wrote in... Uh, because there's marginalia, you know, little check marks and stars. Leslie said, no, you really can't. I mean, sometimes maybe you can, but there's just no way of knowing, even just from the use patterns, who used what book or who read what or who didn't read what. She did say there there were quite a few books that didn't get finished because, you know, back then the way books were constructed, you had to slit the end papers to turn the page because the way they were printed and folded. So she said there are quite a few books that didn't have their last, you know, chunk of pages slit. Mm-hmm. So you could tell that they weren't read. But she did say that the, Emily Dickinson had her own Bible and then a dictionary, a Webster's Dictionary, that were very well used. And she thinks it's pretty safe to assume that that was all Emily's use yeah. there. The Emily Dickinson House and Museum is actually closed now until March 2022. So obviously it was closed all of 2020 as well. But they're closed now because they're undergoing a major renovation. I thought they talked about that when we were there. I think they had renovated like one little section, but they talked about that they had more renovations they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Some major, I think, structural things and uh, kind of like the the Stowe House up in Hartford. 
they did a lot of renovation that is not necessarily visible for visitors to see, but, you know, fire protection and security things. I, I know when we went up there, there was a display about Emily Dickinson's herbarium, the plants and flowers she pressed. Those are now completely digitized and available to look at online. And uh, Leslie said she they want people to go and look at them and use them however they want. So they actually got contacted recently by a woman's clothing store that wanted to use some of the flower and plant images on their clothing. Oh, how cool. And they were asking for permission. They're like, yeah, go for it. It's this all public domain to use however you want. It's nice if you credit us, but... Yeah, that's so cool. That was my first Biblio adventure, and I uh, really, I, I don't re- even remember how I stumbled across that one, but I'm glad I did. That's so funny that you should say that, because my first Biblio adventure was with Lisa Marie Donovan and Phyllis Grant. Lisa Marie Donovan's the author of Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger and Phyllis Grant of the book Everything is Under Control, both chef memoirs. And I was thinking the same thing, like, I have no memory of how I found this. I just got on something. It was either Facebook or Instagram. And there they were having a conversation live. And I was so excited. You know, they're both big chefs. And so they were talking about food and they got together. This is so me and so funny that, that I love this. They got together to talk about breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and Phyllis Grant, she, they were both just standing in their kitchens and she had all these different bowls of breadcrumbs. And the big takeaway, listeners, is never throw away any bread because they said, you know, just let it get stale, make it into breadcrumbs, throw it into a container, label it, throw it into your freezer. And then anytime you need breadcrumbs to make meatballs or, you know, a tuna um, cake or something like that, you've got breadcrumbs. But one of the bowls, she had cake crumbs. And I was like, who has leftover cake? (laughs) Doesn't happen much in my house. (laughs) But they were talking about, you know, like if you do have leftover cake or a piece of cake gets stale, do the same thing. Throw it into a food processor or you can put it into a Ziploc bag and just bang it with a hammer literally and make yourself some breadcrumbs. And then you can use them, you know, like if you have some puddings, throw a handful of breadcrumbs on, you know, cake breadcrumbs on your pudding and things like that. So Wow, how interesting. I have never ever yeah. thought about that. Me either. And I've had this really hard piece of focaccia sitting on my counter, which I probably would have composted in typically, but now I'm like, well, I'm going to throw them in my food processor. Why not? You know? Yeah. So breadcrumbs. I nerded out. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cake crumbs are a revelation. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Well, and I will say I was I was actually laying in bed thinking about cake crumbs. Like who has cake? Like no one. I never have had leftover cake. But then I remember when you do if you if you're making a double layer cake, often you shave off a piece to make it one side flat so you can pile them on top of each other. Now, usually I eat that piece, but maybe now I'll be encouraged to like, okay, put it to the side, let it get stale, make some crumbs. We'll see. Yeah, that'll be something to experiment with once. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll go halvesies to start. I'll eat half, make half breadcrumbs. (laughs) What was your other adventure? My other adventure was through the... GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco. 
So instead of LGBT, they're GLBT, gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans. It's usually lesbians first, but I don't know why they're gay first. Maybe yeah. just because it was mainly started by men in San Francisco before the alphabet soup of LGBT people got solidified. Because it's LBGTQA now, I think. QIA QIA, right. Yeah. yeah. That's the long alphabet string. Right. And they added the plus to stand for anybody else who comes along and wants to be included in that minority uh, listing. So we'll see yeah. if the plus does end it all or if, you know, I mean, these... The names for gay, lesbian, and trans, bi people, it's changed so much over the just the small decades of my own life. The event was called Archiving Lesbian Memory, Stewarding Lesbian Futures. And this one I did come across during my research on archives. One of the projects I'm working on is dealing with lesbian and archives. I was really happy to stumble across this and be able to attend it. It was a conversation between four authors and people who use archives or archivists themselves. It was Jen Jack Geisking, who wrote A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers, 1983 to 2008. That just came out in 2020 from NYU Press. Jack also has an Everyday Queer New York website where he has charted all of these locations that lesbians and archival research that she's done have mentioned event places that they would attend or bars or things like that. And then you have this interactive map to really kind of see that geography. So I don't think I've ever come across a talk or a book dealing with lesbians and geography like that. So very cool. I look forward to diving more into that. The second person was Kate McKinney and her book is information activism, a queer history of lesbian media technologies. And this just came out from Duke in 2020 and it's up for a Lambda award for um, best nonfiction, I believe. And then she's co-editor of a book called Killjoy's Castle, Dikey Ghosts, Feminist Monsters, and Other Lesbian Hauntings from 2019. And that sounds like a really tantalizing title. <laughs> That's great. Um, but what her work focuses on queer social movements that and how they use digital technologies to build alternative information structures for themselves. I did order a copy of her book because it's dealing with 1983. So she chose 1983 because it was the year she was born. And for me, that was the year I was a junior in high school. And just some of the technologies she talked about in her talk, which is like, like the K-Pro computer. Yeah, I was like, oh, my dad had one of those, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I look forward to that because what her history is, is my lived experience. So yeah. I thought that would be a, a really interesting book to check out. And then the other two folks, Brianna Simone Jones, her new anthology is called Mouths of Rain, an Anthology of Black Lesbian Thought. This is published by the New Press, and it's really groundbreaking. A lot of people are praising this collection because it's tracing the history of intellectual black lesbian thought. So many of the writers uh, that are in there are well-known, you know, um, Alice Walker, Audre Lorde, uh, and then people who are not necessarily known to me, but um, might be, you know, like um, the poet that I've been reading. Lucille 
Clifton. Clifton, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, I think she was in there too, I, I noticed. So Jones is still, she's a PhD candidate, graduating soon, but this anthology is already making waves. So that's one I definitely need to check out as well. And then the last panelist was Shanta Smith-Cruz, who's an archivist at the Lesbian Herstory Archives in New York, in Brooklyn. And uh, she's a assistant curator and associate dean for teaching, learning, and engagement at New York University Division of Libraries. And she has some books coming out, one dealing with lesbians and libraries. So it was a really fascinating talk. They each took, I don't know, they had 10 minutes each maybe to talk about their book or their work. And then they were totally geeking out on each other. I bet. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, especially with uh, Jones's anthology, that Miles of Rain, Smith Cruz was like, oh, my God, like, how did you get the rights for all of those in there? Because the, the Alice Walker poem she uses from the archives, from the Alice Walker archives, she found two different variants of this poem. And she happened to, she told the story. She's like, well, I was at a conference a writer's conference, and Alice Walker was there. So I went up to her and I said, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm working on. I would really love to. And, you know, they're screaming. The other panelists are, like, screaming with delight about this story <laughs> because, like, yeah, you just walk up to Alice Walker, yeah, you know. be bold. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Wow. So that was a really great panel. And they do have a recording of it, so we can put the link to that in the show notes. Oh, great. Nice. Wow, that's a big reading list right there, too. Totally it is. I, I have it printed off, and um, that's going to be some of my summer reading. Right on. Yeah. Good for you. Well, I attended the Reading Across Rhode Island event with Jason Reynolds. Um, oh. He's written children's fiction, but he also wrote the book Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. And this was a joint effort with Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds, so he told the story of Ibram X. Kendi for years, literally working on him to get him to write a children's version of this book because he just felt like, you know, he written the adult version and he didn't really have the chops to figure out how to present it to kids. And finally, he convinced him. But then Jason Reynolds was talking about how much pressure he felt because it's such a powerful, important book, and he wanted to present it well. And he kind of was struggling, and he had a deadline, and had started it all wrong, and gave it up, and then finally went back and revisited the concept and figured it out. But one of the things I loved about him is, he, you know, it was a Zoom event. We all know it's so weird. You're just like talking into a vacuum. But he knew there were all these kids because the reading across Rhode Island is this great program where they read it in schools, the community reads it. So he knew there were a lot of students there listening. You know, the theme of it is about racism and how we can somehow start to try to combat this issue in our country, especially in the United States. And he started by just like looking into the camera and he's such a compelling man. And he said, I love you because you are you. I am a human being. You are a human being. Everyone is the same. And it was just so wonderful. I just loved that. And he was also talking directly to the kids and saying, like, I wasn't a good student. I was a terrible student. And I really my form of reading when I was a kid was to actually read rap lyrics. 
He said, I would get the liner notes in CDs and I didn't have books. And when I found books, they didn't represent me. And so I chose to read rap lyrics and that's how I got familiar. I thought that was such a cool story. He was so real, Mm -hmm. just down to earth and real. And um, he started writing, the kids started to ask questions. I shouldn't say the kids, the listeners, whoever was on the Zoom calls did. And one kid asked him how old he was when he wrote it. And he said he was 35. It took him two years and two months to write it because he wrote it and then had to rewrite it. So, Mm -hmm. and then someone else asked him a question about what he books he thinks should be on reading lists in schools. And he was like, I am not going to tackle that one. But he said, what I will say is that a lot of people talk about the books that shouldn't be on the reading list or shouldn't be taught anymore. And he used To Kill a Mockingbird as an example of that. And he said, I disagree with that. I don't think To Kill a Mockingbird should be taken off reading lists. He said, what matters is how you teach it now, you know? So teach it as a flawed novel and teach it in contemporary times now and how important the book was when it was written and put it in context Mm -hmm. and then teach kids about white saviorhood and what that means and what that concept is, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, then the history of that novel itself and right. how it was received and and exactly. obviously how takes on it ha- have changed, you know. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was really neat. And I also thought it was a brilliant way to back out of, you know, like trying to give people a reading list that he thought was right. So um, <laughs> again, the name of the book, which I now kind of think I'm going to read the kids version because I just liked how he talked about you know, how he broke the concepts down and things like that. Um, The book is called Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, and it's a joint effort with Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. What about upcoming Biblio adventures? Anything on your calendar coming up? Well, this Saturday, which will be passed by the time this episode airs, is Independent Bookstore Day. So I'm hoping to do something with that. I don't know what it'll be, but I have so many favorite bookstores around here. I'm hoping to do something. What about you? Yeah, I'll definitely hit a bookstore, I think. I think I want to go visit one. I'm not sure which or what, but I, you know, I always have my list of books that I want to get. I do have one event schedule that's not coming up until May 1st. It's a conversation with Sarah Waters. Sarah Waters is going to be in conversation And I'm so sorry, I didn't write down the name of the other person. And I tried to look real quick before we started. Um, We'll add that to the show notes. But this is part of the London Library Lit Fest. I've never seen Sarah Waters in conversation. I think I've seen a video of her. So I'm really looking forward to this event. She's one of my favorite living writers. Her novels, Tipping the Velvet and then Fingersmith, are two of my all-time favorite novels. I love them so much. She's written other things like The Night Watch, The Little Stranger, and, and a couple others. So she's a really well-loved writer. And I really look forward to that event. Again, it's May 1st, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Great. I have one coming up on May 11th at 6 Eastern time with Chris Bohalian and conversation with Wally Lamb. Cool. Yeah, and this is with our affiliate Savoy Bookshop and Cafe and Mystic Books. They're doing it as a team. Chris Bohalian has a new book out called Hour of the Witch. 
I don't know what it's about, but I always love his books. So I'm really looking forward to it. It is a free event, but you can register. We'll put the link in the show notes. Do you have any upcoming reads? I do. I have a book that I want to read that was gifted to me. A bunch of Booktopians got together and did this during the holidays. So I forget the platform that we use, but everybody could add some books that they wanted, you know, in a certain price range. We tried to keep it reasonable. And then I think it was a random generated thing where you got the person who you're going to be gifting something to. So my person was Linda, our Goodreads librarian, Linda in Ohio. She got me Ghosts of Harvard. And this is a novel by Francesca Saratella who was Lisa Scottolini's daughter. So this book came out within the last year. It's up for Best First Novel of the Year from the International Thriller Writers. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and Linda, and this is another thing too. We all tried to buy our books from Northshire Bookstore up in Manchester, Vermont, because that's where Booktopia was born. So yeah, there's a little note from Linda. So I look forward to that. Ghosts of Harvard, it's set in Harvard. Francesca went to Harvard as a student. So I'm looking forward to some really good sense of place and then obviously some kind of ghost thriller action. Right on. Looks good. It has a good cover. Thank you, Linda, for being our librarian. And also, she's not just our librarian. She's eagle eyes because she catches (laughs) my typos in the show notes. So thank you, Linda. We really appreciate you. Absolutely. I have one book coming up um, that summer by Jennifer Weiner. Jennifer Weiner, I never know. And it comes out May 11th, so right around the corner. She typically has like a big summer read book comes out in May. And I've been so busy moving and working. I'm so tired and I cannot wait till I hit this big work deadline and get moved in and I can sit on the porch and just dive into this book and have my first like summer read. So again, it's called That Summer by Jennifer Weiner. Coming up next, we have an interview with Melissa Homestead, whose book, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis, just came out from Oxford University Press. Um, Dr. Homestead knows Cather's letters inside and out. She knows so much about Cather. She is also now the world's most knowledgeable person on Edith Lewis. Uh, This is kind of like a joint biography. I really love learning about Edith Lewis. We really hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Homestead. I thought it was really fun to learn more. And, you know, we could have talked all day. Yeah, very interesting. She's a really interesting person. And also reminds me of Anne Boyd Rue in the sense that, you know, she writes in a very accessible style. And she's just an accessible person, which was made the conversation fun. And her cats were around and (laughs) visiting as she chatted with us, which was lovely. Yeah, so enjoy. We're thrilled to have with us today, Dr. Melissa Homestead, author of the new book, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. It's currently the number one new release in LGBTQ studies on a site that shall not be named. Dr. Homestead is a professor of English, program faculty in women's and gender studies, director of the Willa Cather Project, and associate editor of the Complete Letters of Willa Cather, a digital edition at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which is my alma mater. 
But it was at Smith College, Dr. Homestead's alma mater, where the spark for the only wonderful things was born. We're looking forward to hearing about Melissa's journey of researching and writing this long awaited joint biography that places Edith Lewis back at the center of Cather's life where she lived for almost 40 years. Welcome, Dr. Homestead. Thank you. It's so nice to have you here. And I have to say that when I opened the book and started the introduction and it said that you had been working on this book for 18 years, I gasped out loud. <laughs> That's a long time. Can you tell us about the journey you had from being at Smith College and finding this index card? Maybe you could tell the listeners about that. And then here you are 18 years later with a book. Well, I found the index card many more years than 18 years ago, but I returned to it. I returned to the index card about 18 years ago. So um, I first tried to research Edith Lewis's life when I was a senior in college and writing an honors thesis on Willa Cather. And I went to the archives and it seemed like a dead end because there was just this index card that said, companion to Willa Cather, not for publication. And the archivist was like, well, that says it all. And I didn't know how to do research in archives. And I went off to grad school and I didn't like it and I dropped out and then I went back and I dropped out again and I worked in a library, I worked as a paralegal and then I went back and finished my PhD. But I didn't actually get to the Willa Cather research again until I was, you know, already had been a professor for a few years and I was working on 19th century American women. And then I returned to Willa Cather um, because of a friend who also went to Smith College and we were, uh, we were both curious about, well, what could we find out if we looked in the Smith College archives? Um, and then I got back to this index card and it turned out to have a lot more on it than I had remembered. And it also didn't say companion to Willa Cather, it said companion Willa Cather, which put Willa Cather inside of Edith Lewis's life rather than the other way around. It wasn't like she was the secretary slash companion. It was like Edith Lewis's companion is Willa Cather. Oh, but don't put that into the, the Alumni Quarterly magazine. Um, that's really kind of the context of that card because this was the class secretary recording information and it was uh, Edith Lewis's college roommate who had clearly written in to say that Edith Lewis and her companion Willa Cather had visited in France. Um, so that was at the very beginning. First looking at Edith Lewis's transcript in the Smith College archives, looking at that index card again, which had a whole lot of information about her work history, uh, her first 15 or so years out of college. And then it became this, well, I mean, it's hard to describe the process because over the course of 18 years, so many things about research changed. Um, digital newspapers became a thing that weren't at the beginning. I was there in microfilm and trying to read microfilm of daily newspapers for any period of time. I resorted to <laughs> weekly and bi-weekly digests of newspapers. And then the mass digitization projects that if you're talking about stuff before things are in copyright, like in the late 19th and the early 20th century, you can find obscure people so much more easily when you've got those mass digitization projects. I think there were some people who thought I should have finished this book less than 10 years after I started, but most of the really important material was simply not accessible. In fact, a good portion of it was in the hands of Charles Cather, Willa Cather's nephew. And when his materials, his papers, which were you know advertised as 
Willa Cather papers. It's really Edith Lewis and Willa Cather papers. And so a lot of the really important material, including all of these letters from her college roommate to her, started coming in with that collection. And there were just other things too, little travel documents, diaries, and all of this material about what Edith Lewis was doing after Willa Cather's death as her executor. If I had finished the book before that all became accessible, it it would have been a much poorer book, I think. And outdated so quickly with these new contributions to the archives and uh, the digitization projects, which are just amazing to, to have all of those. Could you talk a little bit about how, you know, what were the circumstances that basically erased Edith Lewis from Cather's life? I mean, I think the circumstances really arise after Willa Cather's death. Um, And they have to do with uh, the Cold War panic over homosexuality, the Lavender Scare, as one historian has called it, uh, so that the truth of Cather's life became very inconvenient for people who wanted to build up her legacy. Um, And I think that really the environment that they started living together in Greenwich Village in the aughts, very different environment. And even through, you know, the 1940s, when they were older, I think the climate had already started to change, but they were well established, financially secure. Um, Cather was ill a lot of the time, so they were spending a lot more time just at home and not out and about so much. So I think that the, the 1950s Cold War panic is certainly an important part of it. Um, I also think that nobody likes the executor. Uh, so if, if, if you have the power to tell people they can't do what they want to do, that tends to breed resentment. And so there is a lot of statements in scholarship that mentions Edith Lewis that represents her as hewing too close to Cather's wishes and her self-mythologizing. But I think if Edith Lewis hadn't followed Cather's wishes, she would have been condemned just as much. If she had ignored Cather's wishes, then it would be like, how dare she ignore Cather's wishes? Uh, And I think more broadly, people uh, had a tendency to attribute their own distaste about Cather's sexuality to Cather herself. Uh, so that they would, um, you know, presume that she must have felt shame, that she must have, right. And so living happily for 40 years with the same woman doesn't accord with that. So you just kind of make her go away, right? So it becomes kind of a vicious or virtuous circle, depending on how you think about it. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of a Boston marriage? Well, it's funny because I've been teaching all this academic year, uh, doing new research. I've been teaching an undergraduate class. Uh, I taught an undergraduate class fall semester called Queering the 19th Century United States Literature. So it was focusing on American literature, 19th century texts. And then right now, finishing up Queering the 19th Century, an interdisciplinary sort of transatlantic seminar with graduate students. And I, I really think that the Boston marriage needs a much fresher look. So there's certain things that you hear about the Boston marriage, a socially accepted, publicly recognized relationship between two educated, financially secure women in the late 19th century in Boston, right? And so this is the Boston marriage. And then there's supposedly a shift and Cather supposedly represents the shift. So you go from Sarah Orne Jewett, who mentored Cather uh, for a year, um, the last year of Jewett's life, in fact, 1908-1909, her relationship with Annie Fields. And then you go to Cather, who supposedly lived a very different life and you know felt the shame of the coming of modern homosexuality. But of course, 
my whole point is, no, wait a second, she lived with one woman for nearly 40 years. So where is the big break? Um, and there certainly are differences. Cather's fiction in many ways is very different from Sarah Orne-Jewett's fiction. And I'm a big Jewett fan and I can recognize the difference. So she didn't write about um, romantic bonds between women uh, in the way that arguably Jewett did, but you can't find her life in her works. And so I think that the Boston marriage, on the one hand too, I also think that there's been a sense that because the few documented examples are of elite women in Boston, that that's all there was. And I think that there really just is a whole history of domestic romantic relationships between women that simply has not been documented enough. And I, I could imagine you know, uh, I think there's a tendency to think that no such thing could happen for working class women because they didn't have that privilege. Well, what do we really know? I'm not, I'm not sure we know. And then the historical break into the 20th century. But actually, if I keep saying this enough, and uh, Chris, you may have heard me say this before, I want to write a dual biography of Sarah Orange-Jewett and Annie Fields, because I think even that example is just simply not well enough understood. I don't really think we know what the Boston marriage is. And if that's the Boston marriage, I think it deserves a lot more attention than it's gotten in a much more sophisticated reading um, because there are separate biographies of the two of them, but one that would really put them together. And um, uh, Willa Cather, I've got a whole, like, you know, practically written in my head, a whole little preface where Willa Cather is gonna be standing outside 148 Charles Street in Boston where Jewett and Fields live anticipating what she's going to find inside and trying to figure out. And nobody actually knows exactly when she first met them. And I, I feel like if I spent several weeks in a whole bunch of papers in Boston, I could find it, but that's mm -hmm. mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You know, that the question I wanted to ask is you mentioned being a college student and really not knowing how to do archival research. It's you know not something that's usually taught to literary scholars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it seems to be more on the job training. Are, do you have any recommendations for people who might be wanting to do archival research for biographies or literary scholarship? You know, I have done so much of it really by the seat of my pants over an extended period of time. And more recently, I've read some sort of theoretical works about the archive. And I think there is really no good. Well, I'd say one thing I could say is that for biography, anybody who does family history research, those are sort of important skills. So researching your uh, biographical subject in the same way that you would research ancestors, uh, looking at census records and newspapers and, you know, those uh, birth and marriage and death and whatever, those are all important um, skills. I mean, I would say that the the thing that was most important to me was having worked in a rare book and manuscript library for two and a half years in Philadelphia. And in fact, processing the papers of the most famous rare book and manuscript dealer in the early 20th century, Dr. Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach. And he was a doctor, PhD in English uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. And I just got an inside sense of how libraries work. And I think that was really just very important understanding, you know, things like the difference between cataloging individual items and creating finding aids for large archival collections, for example. You know, those are things that I really uh, came to understand. But it's, I think I didn't really 
think I was writing a biography until very late in the 18 year process. <laughs> um, and I think if I had, I might have felt more frustrated, right? Because the conventional materials of biography, I didn't have a lot of those. And so I just kept coming at it from different angles and just finding what I could find. And then, you know, the, the biggest tool was really, I just have massive chronology documents. Um, I also did a lot of transcribing rather than, you couldn't do digital imaging, um, often weren't allowed to photocopy um, and having a big bibliographic database that I could keyword search and sort things chronologically was just really important for even just, you know, pulling together 18 years of research, being able to go back and, and, and find something that I forgot I had, um, basically. So, yeah, wow. but also, and then also having been a paralegal, I, I also just, <laughs> um, and actually a lot of, uh, there were a lot of different kinds of online resources that I was using when I was a paralegal uh, for pay, um, you know, legal research databases and commercial products databases. But I just also came to have a very, good understanding of um, the potential and limits of digital searching and how those things are organized too. So. Oh, very cool. Thank you for that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Edith Lewis and her writing. She published short fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? How many stories did she publish and are they accessible? Can people find them? Yes, yes, they are accessible because of mass digitization efforts of newspapers. So uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Libraries, in fact, uh, had a federal grant, and this was a whole program for digitizing newspapers. So if anyone goes to the Chronicling of America site, the Library of Congress digital newspapers site, um, you can. And then there are also commercial sites that have actually just kind of taken a free ride on the um, Library of Congress digitization project. But Yes, you can find the Lincoln Courier and all these other Nebraska newspapers there. So she published, I think it was a dozen short stories when she was, you know, like 16, 17 years old, which is a pretty remarkable record. She was already taking college level courses. And I think she wrote a lot of these stories um, uh, for these composition courses. Uh, and then she published a couple more short stories and a Smith College literary magazine and some poems. And then finally, she published one short story in a national magazine, Collier's Weekly, uh, when she, so that came out in 1905 and she submitted that in 1904, when she was a couple of years out of college. So she was quite, she was quite ambitious. I mean, I would say that the early stories are impressive for a 16 year old. <laughs> Not that, although I, it was actually a great delight when I decided that I was going to write about that entire body of fiction and make sense of it. And I think, uh, you know, part of what I was really getting from the fiction was a sense of, you know, a ambitious, uh, literary 16, 17 year old living in a sort of bourgeois family in a Midwestern city, imagining that she was going to escape and live a glamorous bohemian life in the city, right? So you can, you can sort of see that um, in her fiction and imagine that rebellion, um, you know, a kind of contained rebellion, but I think it's also um, a rebellion. Yeah, rebellion and such freedom. Um, I, you know, I admire her courage for heading off to New York City like she did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is, you know, a great moment. She comes home for a year, teaches elementary school, and then she's just like, I'm going to New York. 
and she goes to New York. It's um, it's an amazing thing that she does. She's only she would only be twenty one. I think she was still twenty one. She turned twenty two in December after she had moved there, and at that point too, I think her family's financial problems were so bad that her parents were not subsidizing her. I, I think in college she had no idea what was going on with the financial collapse of her family. But I think too, then she really was going off, you know, totally on her own, not with mom and dad bankrolling her, which I think is a, you know, but these are stories that we recognize today, right? You go to college somewhere and you're going, I'm going to go to the big city and I'm going to make a life for myself as an author. And often that involves, you know, mom and dad sending you checks, right? <laughs> I was there in grad school, so I can say that. I didn't want to be a literary author, but um, but no, I think she really was living a real bohemian life of, uh, you know, just, just barely scraping by, but also really enjoying the city and kind of living something of her dream. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, and you can go, uh, listeners, to to Greenwich Village and, and you know, do a, a walking tour of... No Five Bank Street, though. No Five Bank Street anymore. Yes. That building, that's why they lost their lease there, of course, was the building was taken down. But yes, you can. My my friend Tom Gallagher actually did a special tour for me one-on-one, including I gave him the addresses of every office where Edith Lewis worked. And we walked around every place that she had worked, which was kind of fun. He lives on Union Square, so he's been living in Greenwich Village for, for decades. But yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I was surprised to learn that the closet was a metaphor that just came about in the 1960s. I was surprised it was such a recent concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, the persecution of the Cold War was a real thing, but the closet as a metaphor, uh, and I'm relying on, you know, historians who've done the research, um, in particular, George Chauncey's book, Gay New York, and then also I'm forgetting the name of the Lavender Scare historian, but he also makes the same point. And yeah, so there could have been hiding, but not called the closet. And I'd say even in academic queer studies, Eve Sedgwick's book, The Epistemology of the Closet, is considered to be the founding text of queer theory as an academic practice. And there's closet in the title. It's all about, you know, she calls the open secret structure of the closet. But as a metaphor, that's not the metaphor that anyone was using. And certainly for for Catherine Lewis, you know, there's just no hiding. There's no naming, mm-hmm. but also no hiding. I mean, if you have basically, you know, an open invitation to drop in for tea at Five Bank Street on Fridays, and you're both there, and everybody knows you both live there, and then people will say, well, they had separate bedrooms, but, you know, married straight people had separate bedrooms, too. And Cather's novel, The Professor's House, when they move into their new house, right? They have their own their own bedrooms. I mean, that's that just doesn't tell us much of anything, but yeah, there they were. Um, there was there was no hiding that I could find. Discretion, again, not naming, but not hiding. And certainly not a door with Willa Cather just peeping out, right? Yeah. Or coming out of, or not even coming out of the closet, sort of getting out the back of the closet and having a regular male companion that you take to functions or whatever as your pseudo boyfriend, right? That's just not something um, that happened. Melissa, I wanted to ask you about the pictures in the book. 
Mm-hmm. I love the pictures. Uh, can you talk to us about how you chose them and if there were any pictures you came across that really surprised you during your research? Uh, so the pictures on the cover, which Chris has in back over there, um, <laughs> there, you know, it was a, a real struggle finding pictures of Edith Lewis, but the picture on the cover, it's Photoshopped two pictures together uh, rather than actually a picture that somebody else took of them together. So um, in fact, most of the pictures that I found were exactly that, handing the camera back and forth. Um, But the one of Edith Lewis there, that was in the Charles Cather collection. And I think it was five or six years ago when I found it. But what it was actually was um, a developed negative and there was no print. And um, they kept integrating more materials into the Charles Cather collection as his trustees kept sorting through his house, which was apparently stuff full of stuff and figuring out what stuff was properly part of his donation of that collection to our libraries. And so I would just go to the library every couple of months and see what else had appeared. And I just saw there was a folder in that sort of clamshell archive box and and I pulled it, and it was, uh, it was blue stationary paper, and it was stuffed with negatives. Um, and I was like, this is Edith Lewis's stationary. I recognize it. And I was just like, light box, bring me a light box. <laughs> <laughs> and so I put these on the light box, and there she was. This is the greatest picture, wow. but uh, it was this, this negative, and I recognized what it was. And also in that collection, although it was a print when it came in, I remember opening up a folder and looking through prints and Edith Lewis on the beach in 1914 when she was visiting her college roommate in Italy. Uh, there she is in a 1914 bathing costume. So, so that was a delight to find. And right away, I knew what it was because that trip, I just kept finding more and more. That was just kind of like an epic making trip in her life. And I knew right from the start, she mentioned stuff about it. And some of the earliest letters uh, that came to light, a letter to uh, Oxa Barlow Brewster's daughter, Harwood, where she's like, oh, I've always felt so close to you because I was right there from the beginning when you were little, mm. you know, so she was visiting. And so more and more kept coming in. So when I saw that picture, I was like, oh, my God, it's the 1914 trip. She's on the beach. So <laughs> that was fun. Um, but I don't know. Well, it, and just... It, even some of the pictures, uh, the pictures of them on horseback that are on the inside, the back jacket flap, those were misidentified by the first scholar to look at that book, uh, surveying copies of the, of Cather's books for the Willa Cather Scholarly Edition is two pictures of Willa Cather. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, nope, nope, that's Edith Lewis and Willa Cather. So yeah, yeah, I mean, somewhat, I, I don't know if there are any other pictures that you were particularly thinking of that uh, that you that you liked, that you were interested in, but uh, it was a, a continual process of discovery. Yeah, I just loved them. I mean, it really added to the, the feel, you know. Yeah, if they had let me, I would have had a lot more pictures. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I mean, it, that's what I mean. It must have been really hard to choose which one. And, and the great trick was staying within my contracted limit by having my friend Andy Jewell Photoshop pictures into one image, even when they're like separate, not making them, blurring them. But if I put them side by side, that's one picture, right? <laughs> That's how I got down to 52. 50 was actually my contracted limit, but um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I I think Chris had a a specific Cather question that must come from Chris. It can't come from me. Yeah, I was just curious. Do you ever get sick of Cather? Well, you know, it's in terms of the other work I do, um, working on 19th century American women novelists, popular novelists, 
I I get annoyed at Cather for having all the cookies, as it were, in literary history and getting so much more recognition. And she's she contributed to that devaluing of some of the women who came before her. So I do get annoyed sometimes, but I also feel like there's so much more to know and so much more work that could, I mean, there's just so much more to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as long as I'm focusing on the new things to do, Um, And I I probably have read my Antonia way too many times. I should stop for a while. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of my obsession one. But but yes, yes. Um, I I think that the world has not paid enough attention to Cather's later short fiction, particularly obscure destiny stories. There's so little attention paid to those. And those are um, not just because Edith Lewis was very active in editing them. Those are just such um, beautiful stories that haven't been read enough, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that question. I know it was a rather blunt delivery, um, (laughs) but I often wonder about that with scholars who do spend, you know, decades working on an author, if they just sometimes just have enough of them. (laughs) Well, although, you know, really my book is mostly not about Willa Cather's works. Right. 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 So yeah. yes. So yeah. that um, and I am kind of a contrarian by nature, and so making Willa Cather looks very different in this book than she does in any previously published biography. So in some ways, it's a different Cather. I'm not getting sick of the same one. There's a, there's a there's a new Cather. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, talking about Edith Lewis's impact on Cather's writing, you know, the actual evidence that you found in the archives, in those manuscripts. Can you just talk a little bit about that and and her influence as a a copywriter? Yeah. Um, So uh, some of those typescripts have been known for uh, since the early 1990s. Um, I mean, there was this idea that Cather had destroyed all of those typescripts. There's one letter where she tells Alfred Knopf's son that, and everybody's like, well, nothing to look for. Well, actually, there's some of the typescripts that are uh, the earliest ones to get into libraries. Edith Lewis donated them to the New York Public Library in 1948, and they were sitting there, and nobody was paying attention to them. Mm. Uh, And then the um, Helen Cather Southwick, uh, Charles Cather's sister, Willa Cather's niece, when her papers came in, I think sort of, I think they came in in like the late '90s or early 2000s. That was part of the impetus for the project. Was that well, what do we make of this? And in this Willa Cather scholarly edition, uh, what was made of it was that Edith Lewis was perhaps taking dictation, hmm. uh, which never made sense to me. Uh, so, I mean, can you just imagine so if you've got a typed document in front of you and someone is over your shoulder saying, cross this out, write this above the line. I mean, there's just no way it made sense. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I started from the premise that Edith Lewis was editing um, and making a substantive contribution. Uh, but also at the very beginning, Charles Mignon, who was one of the editors of the Will Cather Scholarly Edition, who actually was more likely to think of he he wanted to think about her as actually editing right and so he was on board with the argument very early but i also he said well why aren't you working with those materials already i said like before i really dive into those i want to know who was the person who picked up the pen right what did she bring to the table the writing table and why would willa cather have trusted her judgment what kind of judgment did she bring And so, um, you know, working on her magazine and her advertising career before I really did that work 
um, I think was important to say, okay, so like what kind of skills did she have? Mm-hmm. Um, although it sort of went back and forth. I kept finding out more about the, uh, the magazine career and such, but um, to know that she had been an editor of fiction for magazines and that she also wrote advertising copy. And in particular, advertising copy is all about concision, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as they said in the advertising trade, if words cost money, which is exactly one of the things that Godfrey St. Peter says in the professor's house when he's talking about Tom Outland's diary, if words cost money, you know, so advertising, you really do, you pay, you know, the space costs money. So um, you had to keep everything very tight. And that's the skills that she was bringing to editing Cowler's fiction. That's cool. And and one of the events I saw with you, you, well, you mentioned advertising copy being like flash fiction which I thought was really brilliant and a great way to think about it. And I'm wondering, are there studies that look at maybe mid-century copywriting styles and techniques and how it influenced fiction writers? You know, the the scholarship on advertising, I think uh, Roland Marchand's Advertising the American Dream is my favorite book in that vein. And he talks about parables and I quote from some of his scholarship in that chapter. So, um, you know, tales that teach a lesson and a parable, of course, is also narrative. And so he he analyzes advertising, both the images and the words and the context of parables. And uh, Michael Schutzen's book as well talks. I mean, there's there is a fair amount of people talking about the crossover between advertising and literature. But uh, and F. Scott Fitzgerald is in the middle of a lot of that because he briefly wrote advertising copy. But yeah, I don't I don't know if there's anything, though, as extensive as I do with one particular instance. I mean, in part because it is really strange that you basically could put Edith Lewis's signature at the bottom of these advertisements. That's not normal, right? This just is a very, very peculiar situation, but also a documented situation that one woman was largely responsible for um, the copy that appeared for two of the major products of the biggest advertising agency in the United States. So in the 1920s. Can we ask what those products were? I'm dying to know now. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Jergens lotion and Woodbury's facial soap. Wow. And Jergens lotion, they were, you know, breaking out the category of hand lotion, creating the category of hand lotion where there had just been the general category of lotion before then. And so she was involved in this very long-standing advertising campaign with photographs of beautiful hands by uh, Edward Steichen, the art photographer, as well as being an advertising and celebrity photographer. And then the Woodbury's facial soap, there were a bunch of different uh, campaigns within the time that she was working on that. But yeah, those were the things. And they were all, they were, you know, women's beauty products, right? Interesting. Uh, well, I know we're coming kind of towards the end of our time together. And um, I just want to say, I really love the writing of your book too. It's so readable. Thank um, you. And you, you hear often complaints about academics who can't write accessible books. And uh, that is certainly not the case with this one. It's so readable and enjoyable. And, you know, sometimes queer theorists can get a little oh, bit out there. So I, I don't understand them. Yeah. And I'm teaching in the field and I just, I worry, am I being anti-intellectual? Like, why can't I really understand what the stakes of the argument are? You know, it's storytelling. And, and I also did not know that's what I was doing until, you know, I was at least a decade into the process. Mm. And there's actually a book, there are any academics who listen that really changed my thinking when I was in this four, final four or five years 
uh, Helen Sword, like Sword in the Stone, stylish academic writing. And reading it just really made me realize that I could be a little playful too. I could use metaphors to help convey meaning that I could write uh, in an accessible way. That was a, that was a big change for me. I mean, I've never been a really obscure writer, but I have been, like if you write a book on the history of copyright in 19th century American women novelists, it's a specialist argument. Mm. And this is has a specialist bent in some respects, but no, I really did uh, write it so that non-academic readers could read it. Yeah, it shows. It's it's really wonderful to read. And so your your previous book, uh, American Women Authors and Literary Property, 1822 to 1869, that was the book Melissa just referred to. Which I would not recommend for general readers. Are, are we allowed, I know some authors have great disdain for this question, but are we allowed to ask you what you're working on next? Well, like I said, I think I want to work on a dual biography of Annie Fields and Sarah Orange Right now, though, you know, libraries are still closed down and there's that challenge. So I am working at the very early stages of a critical scholarly edition of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, The Minister's Wooing, which is a historical novel about late American Puritanism. So there's that, but uh, yeah, yeah. But mostly I want to, I, I want to get onto the fields and do it, but I have to be able to get into libraries to do that. So yeah. great. Well, good. that's something to look forward to. Yeah. I don't think it'll be 18 years on that one. Probably at least, <laughs> probably at least a decade, but not 18. That's my prediction. Wow. Oh gosh. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was really great to connect. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. Bye. 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 Take care. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.